Hi, everyone. I'm Mackie Craven, a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in business software companies at the expansion stage and work closely with their teams to help them build large and enduring businesses. This season of Build is dedicated to a topic we've become increasingly passionate about, product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with leaders from PLG companies to find out about what it took to build and scale their businesses, advice they would give their younger selves, and some pretty fun and surprising facts along the way. Now, on with the show. Today's episode of Build features Pendo's founder and CEO, Todd Olson. He shares why their product experience is so critical to their business and how his first job fueled his obsession with customer service. He also explains the art of trying to change user behavior and why context matters more than you might think. Todd, thank you so much for joining us on Build this week. You know, for those that may not yet be familiar, can you just give a little bit of an introduction to Pendo? Absolutely. Thanks, Mackie. It's great to be here. So Pendo was founded in 2013, and the premise was simple. So prior to this, I was the VP of product at an enterprise SaaS business. I found it increasingly difficult to, one, understand what my customers were doing in my product. And I wanted to know that, of course, because I want to understand, were they actually taking advantage of the things we're building? And were they getting value? And I was trying to get data to help steer future prioritization decisions. And I also found it really difficult that we, even when we did ship things, that it was difficult to drive engagement in those things. We were an agile organization. We released features frequently. And I found that our customers often couldn't keep up with the pace of innovation. So you look back, you know, I was in a position where without wanting to have to invest lots of engineering time, it was really hard to understand what our users doing and then drove engagement across the product. So that was the core problem that we set out to solve in those early days. And Fast forward today, it's essentially at a high level what our platform does. As you were feeling that problem, what ultimately inspired you to decide to go out and solve it, right? There's obviously a huge gamut between observing a problem exists and deciding that you and and the team that you build around you are the ones to fix it. You know, I think it was the realization that it's one thing for you to experience a problem or for me to experience a problem. It's another thing to think, how pervasive is this? How acute and how pervasive are the questions you always ask as an entrepreneur that basically is an early signal of your addressable market when you're starting a company. And you know, we talk to a bunch of people and then you also just see, obviously, the macro trends you know, where technology or software is, you know, I guess you can use the term eating the world, which is, of course, the Andreessen term from the Wall Street Journal. You know, every company is becoming a technology or software business. And you realize that everyone is becoming a technology software business. That means they're all going to have this problem. You start to see a really, really big opportunity. And that's what kind of got me from the, well, I'm kind of interested in doing this to, well, I should really do this. And, and by the way, the timing's now. This wave is going to take off now. And that, that's kind of what drove me to do it. Yeah, look, obviously, incredible foresight, right? If you think about digital transformation being a top three topic in almost every Fortune 500 boardroom, or the simple fact that you know, more software engineers have been hired outside of technology than in it in sort of every year since 2017, I certainly couldn't agree more you know, with the trend. And as you started forming not just the idea for the product, but the idea for the company that would be Pendo, what were some of the key design principles you thought about as, you know, you started to think about what this business might look like. Yeah. Just as a serial entrepreneur, I think we all have strong biases on how we like to run companies. And I think that couldn't be more true for Pendo. So I think 
it's really just three main principles that help guide the formation of the company. One, deliver a great product. Product's got to do what it's supposed to do. You know, I guess number one, I mean, we'll talk more about what it means to be a product-led business, but from day one, we've been very focused on delivering a great product that delivered value to customers. And it's got to work. We used the term early on that we were a steak company more than a sizzle company that kind of comes through. And, you know, I mean, people would even criticize us for under-marketing what we did. That's just who we are. I'd rather undermarket and over deliver on product than over market and under deliver on product. So that's to me our first line principle. The second thing is we wanted to put customers at the center of everything we did. Early in my life, at age 14, I worked at a bank, and the bank, as MBA, had this amazing customer first culture. And it actually made a pretty big impact on a teenage version of me to the point where I was like, when I started a company, I want it to treat customers like this company treated customers because it felt so, so good. So I kind of made it a requirement of the company day one to have it part of our values and making sure we deliver value to customers. Having a maniacal focus is still part of our core values, still pretty key to how we operate. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is we wanted to have a culture that attracted the best people possible. Culture was a huge part of the business from day one. I always say that people are the raw ingredients in culture. So, you know, hire really good people. And it's extreme to the point where I still interview pretty much everyone in the business. Just for context, today I've done five or six, like nearly every day that I'm in Raleigh, I do five to six. <laughs> but it's just so critically important. Like I cannot emphasize it enough. So I think those are to me the three key design principles for Pendo. Talking about the third one, which is having culture that attracts the best people. One of the interesting things I've always found about culture is while there are certainly some things that I think you could put on a dimension of clearly desirable or non-desirable, many of them are fundamental choices, right, about a company's own values and the way it wants to build. Some of those aren't maybe sort of formally right or wrong answers. And as a result, you know, a lot of people talk about it as a beacon. I tend to think of it maybe a little bit more like a magnet in the true sense, right, for those that are aligned and, and believe in the same principles it attracts and, you know, just as effectively for those that aren't, it perhaps repels. So as you think about those sort of core components of culture at Pendo and what defines it and what's most important to you there, what are those? Well, we have seven core values. I won't walk through each seven, but I will highlight a few that I think are pretty interesting and more unique. I already talked about the customer one, so I won't talk about that one first. But I talk about transparency. I think transparency is the one that other companies talk about transparency as well. But I find it's really, really hard. I get tested on this all the time. You know, if you're having a challenging quarter and the entire company knows about it, is that concerning? Are you getting a lot of questions around it? How are you handling those questions? How direct and how honest are you? I mean, these are tough decisions. You know, we had an incident in our company where we had to part ways with two individuals. And I got direct questions asked to me and I answered them. Very honest and very truthful in front of the entire business. We do a bi-weekly town hall that has an ask me anything section and it's anonymous. And some of the questions are pretty, pretty hard hitting. And a lot of people ask me, don't you ever get frustrated with these really hard questions? And the answer is no. I'm a bit, you know, maybe immune to them at this point. (laughs) I got a question this week, like, how long should we deal with a crappy manager? And you know, so we talked through that. The way I like to think of it is everything that's being asked are things that people are thinking and or things that people are talking about at, you know, our proverbial water coolers, right? Somewhere around the office, someone is talking about, hey, did you see that? Or hey, I noticed this, you know. And 
I like to squash those conversations or at least air them and get them out in the open. And it's kind of extreme. I mean, I think our transparency is an extreme form of it, but I think it works for us. And that's definitely one area that I think sets us apart and, and people aren't quite used to it. And another part of that, and I guess it kind of aligns with transparency is we have a core value called brutal honesty and people are pretty direct. We use this term magnet. We attract people that like to be direct, but also can handle it. If your ego can't handle someone coming up to you and saying, hey, you know, I think we could have done a better job there. We'll have scenarios where we have great quarters or great events, and people will still pick apart the five, ten things that we could have done better. It's almost a little extreme, you know, like, Mac, you were in a VC. I was at a board meeting with a new investor, and we just came off a pretty good quarter. And the new investor came up to me at a break and said, hey, you guys are really hard on yourselves. like that's just our nature if you want to come to a company and you have a bunch of victory laps and that's in the back probably not the right culture for you not to say we can't celebrate things not to say that we're mean about it it's just we have a focus on being great and every time you do well there's always a handful of things we could have done better those are the things that that kind of stand out in our culture for me as you said right if you're trying to build something great in the principle of sort of continuous rapid improvement right it's great that things have gone well and you've hit goals but you know, what can you learn from it? What can you do better? And and that's frankly how you can continue to grow and continue to be successful in new levels. That's fantastic. I know you said you wouldn't spend time on it, but I can't help but come back to this idea of actually living customers at the center, right? Because that's something that I'd say, if we look at design principles and values of companies that, you know, is one of the ones that's probably most commonly said, but least commonly followed, but does seem to be obviously totally core to the origin of the business and what the company is all about. And so how do you find that's something that gets lived every day? Well, it starts with leading by example in many cases, you know, and you you read on various social media, like your culture is how you treat difficult customers behind closed doors, right? I mean, I've seen cultures where people complain about them or you make derisive terms about certain things. I mean, that's just not ours. We love our customers. And if they're struggling, we're struggling. And, you know, maybe it starts with the fact that I'm a product person or I've taken design thinking courses. I'd say the word I like to use is empathy. Empathy is just a core trait of, I think, the company and a lot of the people at Pendo. We spend a lot of time thinking, you know, well, how would we like this if this is how we were being treated right now? And, you know, the early part of the company, I worked the support queue. I still, from time to time, jump on the support queue and answer questions. We also have public forums. People ask questions. I will, from time to time, jump there. And on the public forums, we'll have engineers jump in, marketing people. Everyone feels like it's a little bit their responsibility if they see a customer having a challenge or have a question. Like It's all our jobs to help that customer find success, to find a way out, help them achieve their goals, right? So I think people don't necessarily say, oh, I have to have a customer success title to help a customer. That's not our culture. And, you know, it affects everything. Like, you know, there are some companies where people hire engineers that you would never put on the phone with a customer. That's not our culture. We tell them in the interviews, if you're not comfortable getting on a phone and talking to a customer, being polite, it's not a good culture for you. Everyone can. And sometime at Pendo, you probably will. I want them to experience that. I want them to know what it's like. So I think those are to me like, how you build that culture up. It also means the focus is on doing right by them. It's got to be a win-win. And in, in some instances, if we're not delivering on the customer or the value anticipated, you're like, 
we're going to find a way to make it right. Always. It's just core to who we are. And I think it's really, really important. It makes sense. And obviously going back to sort of the founding insight and founding story of the company and obviously the observation that software is becoming a critical part of how all companies do business. What's your perspective on this idea of product-led growth and ultimately what it means to you and to Pendo as a business? Well, it's transformative. And I think the whole notion of product-led growth is all recognizing the fact that in 2019, it's not simply about how good your customer success is. It's not simply how good your sales or your marketing campaign was. I mean, there's enough content, there's enough information that like the product and the product experience itself really, really matters. Switching costs are lower than ever before. And we're seeing people compete solely on the quality of their experience, the product experience. And I think it's an interesting fact how we got here. I think part of it is driven by the fact that it's easier and easier to build and ship software than ever before. There was a huge barrier to entry, say 10, 15 years ago, where it was just frankly hard to build software on time, delivering any budgets. It was certainly pre-cloud. It was really hard to deploy and deliver, distribute software essentially at scale. Those two things are fixed. So if you're in a business where you're delivering a product to customers and that product experience is bad, you run the risk of getting disrupted by someone that has a better vision, has a better design sense, and can build a product that's a better experience, and you can pull people away. Part of this is the subscription economy as well. That's one of the terms we talk about a lot. Users have a lot more power than number four. Again, in the olden days, we used to sell perpetual licenses, and we sell this as one buyer, and then people get forced to use it. Now, the stakeholders or buyers or purchasing centers do surveys and ask the users, like, how is this going? And if the answer is like, we hate it, we don't use it, we can't use it, it's painful, they take their business elsewhere, right? So again, if you're not delivering on your promise, I think it really matters that you can't just gloss over it with really good customer success or really good sales or really, really good marketing. You have to deliver. That to me is at the core of what product growth is about. You have to deliver on the promise or you're going to lose. Product now is becoming the primary avenue upon which every aspect of the business is basically fulfilling their mission to the business. So an example is if I'm a sales team, how can the sales use product to hit my sales goals? And that could be things like cross-sell campaigns and at trial conversions, right? You know, the sales team may be heavy users of the product to drive that. Customer success is obvious, you know, for driving value. I think, you know, how they use the product is really, really key. I gave an example recently where I talked about recruiting and how recruiting teams can leverage quality product experience. And an example is simple. Like, would you apply for a job at a product that you couldn't stand? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, no, probably not. If you were using something and you thought it was crappy and awful, you would not apply for a job there. Conversely, we get people, and I said I'd interview everyone. So I'll get to an interview and like, I love your product. That's why I put in a job application there. So product-led growth isn't just about, I think, revenue growth. It's you know people. So it's a lot there, but that's how I think of product-led. Yeah, it's certainly pervasive. As you mentioned, it's easier and easier for individual users to, one, not only obviously experience the product they have, but experience alternatives. 
folks, as you mentioned, are instead of going through a sales cycle, right, they're doing most of the buying cycle on their own in many cases before they begin engaging with a specific product or sort of service is delivered through a product. And so you know, there's you know interesting open question around if we're sort of any given business as a product company competing in sort of today's subscription economy, ultimately how much access or how much availability of that product or how much of the value of the product do you want to be able to show and how early as someone's going through that buying cycle? And then when do you start thinking about and how do you start thinking about capturing some of the value that you deliver? To me, this completely depends on the use case and the product. I think conventional wisdom even a couple of years ago was Hey, deliver a bunch of value up front, get people to do something, deliver value before you ask for any sort of money. Or you'd see people deliver just a teeny bit of value and then say, hey, to unlock more value and here's what it could be, pay now, right? So I think there's a lot of interesting thinking here. I think it completely depends on your business. I mean, in our world, I can show immediate value by just showing what's possible for us to collect. Now, that value I'm going to show you is more of a cost savings value. You know, most of us in the product world want to help connect our value to something revenue generating. I can't do that in 30 days. I may be able to do that in 30 days, but the probability is pretty low, right? If the users have expectations that they can, and then they don't, that puts my deal at risk, right? You have to set context the right way. I think one of the more fascinating studies, everyone's talking about this company, Superhuman. You can't even see the software until you give them your credit card. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> so it's working part of it because I think the cult around the product that they've created, but it also shows that, that model works as well. And everyone would argue they're a product-led business as well. You know, it's just a different rendition of it, right? So I think there is no right answer here. I think it depends a lot on what your software does. If your software is capable of showing value very, very fast and you're confident in it, I would. Like, why not? Right? I mean, it's just going to get people hooked. That's the strategy I would take there. If yours is going to be a more long-term value, make sure you set expectations at that. And I would kind of design my trial experience accordingly. Makes total sense. And so obviously one of the things that we're seeing more and more product-led companies do is not just sort of building in and leveraging systems of analytics and insight, but also perhaps in some cases over time, systems of experimentation in their business. But when someone goes from really not having insight into how their product is used and what their kind of users and customers are doing to having insight. What are some of the most common changes both in how some of your sort of end customers that might be using Appendo or might, you know, have just had that kind of sort of set of illuminating moments, how they end up changing their organization or changing their operations to take advantage of this information that they've really never had before? So I think the first thing is changing your perspective of what done means or success means. Very often before people get data, what I find is they think, you know, hey, we shipped this thing. Let's move on to the next thing. And what we try to educate teams is that sometimes shipping something is the beginning, not the end. And what you want to be focused on is adoption, making sure you actually delivered the value intended with that capability. What you find is people are shocked sometimes. (laughs) <laughs> things haven't taken off like they expected. You do all this work, you do all this research, build this beautiful piece of technology, you deliver it, and all of a sudden, like people aren't using it. So the first question we help the answers is why? Let's find out who is using it, who isn't using it. Let's try to segment those customers differently. Let's try to do you know, qualitative surveys to each cohort and kind of understand what's working with one and not working with the others. And let's not move on just yet. 
I think the first transition is realizing that you really want to restructure your feature delivery into phases. You have this initial phase where you're kind of rolling it out, you're testing it, you're getting feedback, and you're iterating on it for a bit. So you need to leave some appropriate amount of slack in your schedules and your roadmaps to make sure you have a chance to actually go finish that thing you build. And what I find is a lot of companies had half built features or three quarters built features in their products. And once you get a product that's been around for five, 10 years, where a good chunk of the features feel half built or 75%, that's a bad experience. Our mission is how do we help companies get to what feels like fully featured products out of the gate? And I think that's the first transition that we'd like to talk about is how do you fully finish a new capability or a new feature? How do you help companies that maybe haven't been successful at doing that, or in some cases may not even have a great concept of what that looks like to get to a point where A, they've you know done it for some of the things that are sort of excellent in their product, but B, are doing it a little bit more consistently on an ongoing basis to ultimately sort of deliver on the value that they promised? I think in this case, it's trying to understand both the success and the failure. So very often when you sip something, you know, assuming people try it. So the first thing is there has to be some level of awareness that the thing even exists. And to do that, you have to often get people to change habits. So that's actually the first step we help companies with is if you're building something new, and that's something, of course, they've never seen before, that is something that requires them to do something different. And getting people to do anything different, is just hard in general. I don't care how good it is and how compelling it is, complete aside, but for pandemonium or recent customer conference, we had a keynote by Dan Ariely, Duke, he's author of a variety of books. And I think the book is predictably irrational. And he talked a lot about even in scenarios where consumers were going to get something for free, it was hard to change their behavior. And I think that's the first kind of principle of product design that we have to help our customers get through is that the failure to get people to use something may not necessarily be due to any lack of design, the feature may be great. You're just trying to get people to do something different. So in that case, in order to change people's behavior, you have to somehow interrupt their flow. And we see this a lot of consumer software. That's some sort of message, that's some sort of prompt, that's some way to get people to try something, do something that they hadn't done before. Now, of course, there's a lot of technique to that. If you have a piece of software where someone's going in to, say, pay a bill or do something that is very fast and they need to get in and get out. Like that's not the time to try to teach them something new. So you have to be respectful of the context in which your customers are coming into your product. But assuming you're doing that, I think trying to introduce new capabilities, get them to try something. And then after they try it, check in with them and find out how did it do? How did it work? Was it successful? And that can help form the basis for future backlogs to really go back and finish that feature so it delivers on the full value you intended. That totally makes sense. And as you think about, obviously, that in itself for any end product company is a behavior change for that business, right? And for those product teams often and sort of the engineering teams downstream. So what have you found are ways, whether in product or working with customers, again, sort of putting customers at the center to help those companies change the way they think about products to have that effect on their end users and, and customers? I think the whole notion of personalization is something I see that uh, works really, really well. 
And when I think about personalization is each user, each customer has a different background, maybe a totally different goal with your product. How do you create an experience for that user that's specific to them? And we see this all the time in e-commerce experiences where when you go to a certain site, they know what you've been searching for, they can deliver the products they know you've been seeking. So it leads to better conversion. Same thing can be said for products. Like if you know you're a, I don't know, small business, we know that small businesses like this. Maybe we even know what you were looking at at the marketing site prior to coming into the product. Maybe we direct you there. Maybe we get you right to the place that we think you want. And then we continually hone that. Like, hey, we saw you were looking at this. Let me show you how to go do that right now. And don't just tell them about it. Get them involved. Make it interactive. We often see that as a really, really high conversion rate. If you speak to someone as if you know what they want and it resonates, you are going to have a much higher conversion rate. And people like doing things, not reading a bunch of things. Like no one wants to log into a product and read a book. You know, anything more than a paragraph <laughs> is painful. You know, it's like, hey, you want to try this out real fast? Yeah, I'll try it out. What's there to lose, right? I think getting people engaged, getting people interactive, getting people to do that first thing, I think is super, super critical. I mean, a lot of people talk in product design about this notion of aha moment. Years ago, you know, Facebook had this study that came out by their growth team that said something to the fact that I don't recall the exact number, like some number of likes. And once you liked your seventh person or somewhere in that numerical range, you were hooked. People got it. Every product has this. It's some notion of once they do this or set of things, the user gets it. They almost convert from someone who is like, ah, maybe I like this to, wow, I really get this now. So the question is, how do we as product designers get people to that moment faster? How do we show them how to do it? We just don't tell them this is what we find. Get them doing it. And I think that's the part that I see great products starting to do now. That makes total sense. Maybe changing gears for a second, obviously as a serial entrepreneur, you've had multiple opportunities in some sense to give yourself advice before founding a company. But as you think back to the beginning of the Pendo journey, what advice would you give yourself then that you almost certainly wouldn't have listened to at the time? Taking privacy, security, procedures, controls. Like I probably would have told myself to think about SOC 2 back in the very early days, which I would have told you is completely idiotic. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's a big deal, architecting it into our solutions and the amount of time it's taken and the investment we've had to make. Now, granted, I think people starting a business today would just build it in from day one. I'm also not an incredibly paranoid human being. Maybe this is like an entrepreneurial thing, but... Like I don't sit around and think about all the ways people can like break things. Like I think you just think about all the things that can do to like make things grow. <laughs> you know? So personality-wise, like a lot of that stuff just feels very much at odds to how I think. So it's taken you know a different mind shift, and I think that's the one piece of advice that I definitely would not have listened to. <laughs> that's great. When not building Pendo, what do you do to unwind? Well, I have five children spanning seven months to 23 years. So that definitely takes up a reasonable amount of time. And then depending on the stress of the day and week, I mean, wine or even bourbon definitely helped me unwind. There's definitely a scale there. I hear that. Well, look, Todd, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time with us on Build today. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Thanks, Mackie. 
Hey listeners, it's Kyle from OpenView. I wanted to give you all a heads up about our upcoming Product-Led Growth Summit in San Francisco on November 13th. There's an amazing lineup of speakers from companies like Slack, SurveyMonkey, Rothy's, Expensify, and many more. Get your ticket at plgsummit.eventbrite.com and use code BUILD for 50% off. Hope to see you there. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to Build on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite purveyor of podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that's read by over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Also, while you're there, check out new content daily on our blog. Until next time. 